Some of you may or may not remember the name Gary Hall. He's the guy who pitched this episode. He also pitched an episode a while ago. Oh God, I don't. Even, it's it's been years at this point, um, <laughs> in real life as well as in the show. It was the first episode where there was a hint of an attraction between Odo and Kira, where Kira's like, "Oh yeah, I broke up with Belial," and Odo's like, or maybe it was Kira getting together, and Odo's just has a reaction to it. And I talked about that during the episode. That was the first time the writers and creators were like, oh, Odo's got a thing for Kira. And they've hinted at that several, several times. In fact, they've stated it outright several times since then. But he always wanted to do a follow-up on that, which was intended to be this episode. Catch is, for various reasons, they didn't want to do that. So they just kind of sat on it and sat on it and sat on it. So while this is not a revelation to us, it still maintains itself as a revelation to Kira, because this is when Kira finds out about Odo's attraction. Now, what's funny about this, Shikar, <laughs> Shikar, stop me if you've heard this one before. Okay, so we've got a love interest for Kira in a position of political power, but we can't seem to think of anything to do with the character, because the only way to do anything with the character is to make him an antagonist. And we've already got Kai Wen for that, so we're just going to axe Shikar off camera and be done with it. Now, I know what you're saying. The the actual reason they were having trouble bringing Shakar back was because of issues getting the guest star back on. There, there was just constant problems doing that because of scheduling conflicts and whatnot. Remember, at this point, several of these actors are usually pulling double duty. Like Armin Shimmerman, who just started on... Uh, I don't remember the name of the show. But another... Oh, uh, Buffy. He had just started doing his stuff on Buffy right about this point in history. So, you know... So, I get the point, don't mistake me, but it's funny that the writers, for the second time in a row, can't think of anything to do with the love interest for Kira. As I said last time, and I'll reiterate this, there are other ways to do things with a character rather than making them a straight antagonist. I'm just saying. So then they decided to push Odo towards Kira. Okay. It's funny to note, I've actually mentioned this a few times, although I don't remember if I've said this during the ruminations, that Nana Visitor and Renee Bergenois both really didn't care for this. They were not a fan of this romance thing, and both of them had the same general perspective. They should be very good friends, but it shouldn't get physical. That's almost a direct quote, by the way. And I point that out, because I've seen that in several interviews ever since, and this isn't them actually getting together, although this is their first kiss, but... To be blunt, you can tell how forced and awkward it is. There's only so much an actor can do when they disagree with something their character's doing. It's it, it's hard to explain, but if you've ever seen it, I I shouldn't say it's hard. I can't explain it. If you've ever seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Where an actor is like, "This isn't what my character should be doing. This isn't how my character should be," but they're told to do it anyways. So their performance, um, I don't want to say it suffers, although it does, but it's more like their performance is off. Like, it's just, it's not correct. And it's visible and it's noticeable, and this is not the last time where I'm going to be saying that about the Odo Kira thing. Moving on. So I gotta admit, first time I saw this episode... Oh, actually, wait, wait. I almost forgot. The reason, the in-lore reason, that Shikar and Kira broke up is because the prophets told them to. Really? I, I can't be the only one who finds that hysterical. Just the idea of, well, honey, God said we just can't be together. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's just, really? That's your excuse? Okay. 
Uh, so, moving on. I gotta admit, first time I saw this episode, I didn't buy it. I figured it was a trick. I mean, we've dealt with people who are master manipulators, who have incredible intel networks, who have fantastic holodecks, mental direct projection things like they've already used on the crew, and of course, shapeshifters. There's no way this is legit, right? No, it's, it's legit. It took a while for me to buy it, because the problem is, well, how do you solve this? Now, I know this is going to sound really cynical, but the problem is, Star Trek usually, usually, doesn't approach things from the perspective of being an actual dilemma. I don't mean to sound dismissive about that, but what I mean by that is, an actual dilemma, as I'm utilizing the term, means you've got bad option one, you've got bad option two, and however many other bad options, but there's no good option. That's the point of a dilemma, right? Now, there might be good parts to some of these options, but they're all bad. So, do you leave these people and, and cessate them, actually wrong finger, cessate them, or do you doom your crew to a hard, horrible existence here and also killing off one of your own members? Yeah, those are both bad options. There's good parts to both, but they're both bad. Hence a true dilemma. Now, Star Trek usually approaches things from the, we'll make a third option thing. Now, I don't mind the third option thing. I don't. It's fine for me. Um, as long as it makes some degree of sense. The problem is, the episode... <sighs> the episode presents the idea of a third option in a way that completely bypasses it. And the episode never once brings up the problem with their intended third option. Now, it's fake to begin with, so maybe that's why they never bring it up. But everyone's totally cool with the duplicate plan. That makes... I don't want to say that makes no sense. Let me try explaining this using a parallel. So, hi, you, the real person. Um, say I'm Q, okay, or whatever, and I just show up. I'm like, hey, listen. So you've got a choice. Um, you can suffer horribly to cause this great good, or, or I can make a duplicate of you right now that's just like you and, and is basically you in every way at the moment it's created, and that duplicate will suffer instead of you. You see the problem here? Because that's their intended third option. We'll just duplicate ourselves, and we'll leave the other O'Brien to never see his family again. I, I, I just realized that's actually funny to say that, considering O'Brien's been through that before. But nobody at any moment seems to think there's anything wrong with effectively damning or dooming the extra crew to staying behind. Right? They're still functionally the same person at the moment of creation. And they're still going to have all of the same problems, including Kira's death, or the fact that the others are going to be distraught at losing their family, and they have to go through the hardship of living on this new planet, and blah, 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 blah. That is a real person who doesn't get the benefit of going home, because you told them not to. You've basically taken... You can see why it's not a good option, is what I'm trying to say. It is itself a third bad option. But they never acknowledge that. They all treat it like it's the, the wonder solution, until they reveal that it's false. It just irritates me, because there's a lot of potential there. But, moving on. So, <laughs> Odo. You'd think Odo in two centuries would be able to look better than this. In fact, I actually really think he looks awful. Like, visually, physically looks awful in this episode. Just have Renee Bergeron without the makeup. I know that's the second time I've said that in this show. But I think it would have worked a lot better than... I don't, I don't know, Stretch Armstrong getting a tan. <sighs> Interesting point, though, about Odo. 
he's infected with the virus right now, right? You know, the one that also infected the, the, the Great Link, you know, the one that Section 31's using to defeat the Founders, right? That's a thing right now, right? So, how is he fine <laughs> for two centuries? There are ways to talk around this, but that just stuck in the back of my mind as I was going through this. Anyways, so Odo prioritizes friendship when his, in his interactions with Kira. Now, I like that, because that's what a good relationship should, should be. Friend first, connection first, then romantic, then physical. Because otherwise it's just physical, and that's not a relationship. That's a, a, uh, a word I'm not going to use on camera, <laughs> or a phrase I'm not going to use on camera. So I like that he does just want to spend time with her as a friend and just wants to be with her as someone who cares about her. It's a nice touch. And he's... I will give René Bergenois credit, credit where credit is due. He does a good job with his role as creepy Odo. Um, we see the sons of Moog. They live as warriors. First thought, warriors against what? Who are they fighting? They mention 8,000 people. I'm not... It, Quick note, they had a crew of like 48, I think, which is under the line of the bare minimum necessary to have a decent gene pool. However, I'm just going to go ahead and brush over that because I'm going to assume they were able to get enough from the ship in order to have access to the medical technology necessary to bypass that problem, basically. In short, genetic tampering to allow for a decent gene pool. It's not that hard to believe that, so I just wanted to... Skip over that really quick. But the Sons of Moog. Now, what I like about the Sons of Moog is they're not just his descendants, but those who have chosen that way of life. That's nice. And that's a very Worf thing. And so you can see how he would have such an impact on these people. And you got to think, Worf, of all people, would love to be a legend. Which is funny, because by several accounts he is, but that's off topic. <clears throat> so... I do want to say, though, even though they never say it outright, they mention hunting and, you know, contesting against great great animals and beasts and whatnot. So obviously we have some kind of animal life on this planet. And obviously it's very arable, too. In fact, this is, they call the place Gaia. It's basically a pseudo-paradise, so that's convenient. Although we only see, I don't know, 200 acres of it? Maybe? That's, that's on the high end. So who knows? Maybe it's the death world outside of that. Maybe this is a... Uh, not an Arrakis. A, uh, oh god, I can't think of the name of it. Karak. Maybe this is a Karak situation. But I mentioned the Sons of Moog thing because I'm picturing basically your classic hunter-gatherer. You know, they, they go out, they hunt, they live in the wild, they eat and, and play and train in the wild, and that's their lifestyle. They come into town and have peaceful coexistence with the settled people, the civilized people, whatever you want to call that, that's in Rome, but you know, the townsfolk, right? And then they go back out to live in the fields, in the wilds. Cool, I'm with that. Hypothetically, in about ten generations, that will almost inevitably lead to war, but it's still a cool concept. I like how O'Brien is someone who really does not... He's, he's, he just consistently raises the objections of the idea of staying. And that makes perfect sense. He has two young children, and a wife, and a career, and friends and family, and blah, blah, blah. Why is he the only one who raises any objections? You'd think several other people would be substantially upset by the idea of not going home, but the only one who shows any real problem is O'Brien, and no one else. 
The only one who even seems on his side is Cisco, and he only does it because of, well, let's just move into the next topic, shall we? He says he refuses to order someone, to ask someone to die, or to sacrifice their life, which is what's actually happening here, in exchange for the lives of others. Now, that's an interesting perspective, because that's wrong. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. What I mean is that's incorrect. There's an episode of TNG, which I actually haven't reached yet, where Troy, Troy undergoes the command test, and she gets everything right except for one test, and she just can't seem to figure out what she's doing wrong until she realizes that the solution is to order a crew member to their death to save the crew, because that's what being a commander means. Cisco would know this, and Cisco would know and acknowledge that, to be perfectly blunt, ordering a military personnel to lay down their life in order to save civilian personnel is the job. So his argument of, I can't ask people to do this, no one can ask people to do this, is actually incorrect. Now, this can, this is why, I don't like this episode, by the way. I guess I'll go ahead and just mention that this time. But until re-watching this with analysis mode on, I never realized how flimsy the internal structure of the episode is. It builds a lot of its emotional weight on the core dilemma. The two problems that, you know, that, that are both have bad solutions, right? Or the, the two bad solutions to the, the core bad problem. But it fails at actually constructing its narrative in a way that actually supports that. And I, I, I hope I'm at least showing some of my work here, because there's just these little weird, oh, that's not quite correct, and how does this work? And why is this going over here? Here's another point. They keep saying the word 8,000. Now, there's a nice thematic point to that, which I'll get to in a minute. But they're talking about more than 8,000 people. Two centuries, and they're up to 8,000? Now, granted, that's not going to be a lot more than 8,000, but all of those people don't exist either. Now, I'm sure they just didn't want to sit down and do the math and be like, you know, the 9,500 people. But I just point that out because it shows, and I'm just going to be as nice as I can about saying this, it shows the lack of thought on the premise that was put into this episode. It's worth noting that the events of this episode will basically never matter again. The Otokira thing won't even happen for... I'm not even sure how long at this point. It's a ways out. And it'll only have some significance in part of Odo's arc in uh, about seven or eight episodes, something like that. And that's it. And I know, I always hammer the, this episode should have significance point. But my point is, this is someone holding a gun to your head and saying, feel, and then walking away. And I don't like it when Star Trek or anything does that. I brought this up back in Voyager with the episode Real Life. It makes you cry with a gun to your head, I believe is the quote I mentioned there. Now, <clears throat> let's move forward. So, they're all so bothered by the betrayal. But I've already made my point about that. After all, they were already totally cool with sending their duplicates to go suffer and die, so that's neat. Dax's mistake is a nice thing that they mention. The idea that Dax screwed up, and that guilt has been hitting them for a while. Once again, once again credit to Terry Farrell. There's this really great scene where she just looks at the other Dax, and she doesn't say anything, there's no words, but she has just got this look of anguish on her face until she finally leaves. It's a really, really good character point. And you could just feel, like, basically, she is just seeing the outer edges of the grief and guilt that he has been wrestling with for two centuries. It's a good scene. It's a very powerful character moment. 
Um, so they they decide to go. I had a note here about the Dominion, but I've decided to relinquish that point because apparently the Dominion hasn't given a crap about them for two centuries. Sure. <clears throat> You'll notice that this is the last time they go into the Gamma Quadrant. This is one from Memory Alpha. They, this is the last time they go to the Gamma Quadrant in the rest of the show. So, I guess they decided that this was basically the final straw, and yeah, we're done. We're done with this. We're just <laughs> we got our own place to deal with. <clears throat> and before I go into my final point, I want to mention how I... My final two points, actually. I want to mention how I do like Odo's body language. René Bergenois is, of course, a good actor. But the way he... The, the sentence structure, the manner of speech, and the body language are all completely different from between the two Odos. So I just wanted to give praise to that. So then the episode ends, and, well, they change the timeline, and those people cessate. They never were. Now, first of all, credit to the episode for that, really. It was, in fact, I've looked a little bit in the behind the scenes, and apparently a lot of people really didn't like that, and really didn't want to go with that, but apparently the idea of sticking to their guns on this was something that was pushed and eventually got through, and again... I'm glad they had the balls to do that. That is pretty impressive in its own right. Although I can make a reference to Enterprise Season 3 here, but I'm not going to. I don't remember the name of that episode. The episode constantly phrases its dilemma as the needs of the many versus the needs of the one. It constantly tries to phrase it as a mathematical exercise. Cold calculus, as I'm so fond of saying. The idea that the lives of the 48 are insignificant to the lives of the 8,000. Now, this is the one thematic point I'll give the episode. The one thing it does that I think is legitimately clever. And that's the fact that when they go to plant the harvest, what they see are people. Individuals. Children and, you know, fellow workers, the sons of Moog, right? They actually show individuals, and in the end, the choice that ends up being made is not because of the numbers, but because of the microscopic perspective instead of the macroscopic. I actually just finished talking about this same general concept when I talked about the ship and the crew last episode, and I talk constantly about the, 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 the paradox that any leader has to do in between taking into account the individual and taking into account the aggregate, the microscopic and the macroscopic perspective. So... Here we see that the macroscopic perspective is not the one that ends up convincing anybody. It is the microscopic perspective. We cannot let that individual person over there, whose name is Molly, die. We can't do it. Now, this is, of course, and the reason I say this is clever is because that's actually what the conclusion of the episode is all about. Odo, the other Odo, chose the one, chose the individual, just like they chose the individuals. And that brings me to my final point. Several people have said about this episode how wonderful and horrible that Odo's choice was to sacrifice all of their existences, including his own, for the sake of one woman. Uh, in fact, I believe there's a direct quote uh, by Moore I want to say about the matter. I, I put the book away and it's over there. Point being, this is <laughs> fascinating to think about. Because you could say it's this deep, romantic thing. Yes, I would be willing to go to war over a woman. I'd be willing to conquer a planet over a woman. Like, this is a recurring trend in historical fiction, is it not? I don't think it's romantic. I think it's him being a founder. 
because the perspective of a founder is that there are individuals that matter and those people that matter matter at the expense of all else a founder will not go out of its way to strangle a solid because they don't care but if strangling that solid with their bare hands will help or aid or save the life of a founder they will do it without hesitation because that's the founder perspective in a nutshell founder lives matter and that's the top principle everything else is secondary to that and this is a topic we'll be addressing again in the future so i have to admit and i almost have almost no certainty or no uncertainty that this was done accidentally but i love the idea that odo's big grand romantic gesture was actually just him finally starting to think like a founder I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this episode. I'll see you next time, guys.